Hello, you are listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 4, The Roommate and Other Tales. Hello, and welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine that features voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Josh Madison. And I'm Ryan Connell. Before we get started, just a little house cleaning up at the top here. We are a community-driven podcast, so if you have a story, a song, comedy piece, or an idea you'd like us to help you record, drop us a line at denverorbit at gmail.com or go on over to our website at denverorbit.com and fill out the submission form there. Also, if you're so inclined and you're enjoying the show, it'd be great if you could go over to iTunes and rate it. And hey, while you're there, maybe leave us a nice review. It would greatly increase the visibility of the show, and it would help us grow our little community. Now, on with the program. Right. Let's just jump right into the first story. I had just joined up with a group called Iraq Veterans Against the War. And that's how I got to know Rick. This is part one of a story about my best friend, Mike. Well, I guess I'm in a a little bit too. This is a story about a roommate that we once had. He was one of the first people that kind of came up and greeted me. I had known another member of that group. They were organizing an action in Colorado Springs to put on a demonstration, of course, about wanting to bring an end to the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was one of the first ones to introduce himself to me, very friendly. And you could tell like he was very open about his homosexuality. He would make a lot of jokes along those lines. I was like, okay, all right, this guy is full steam ahead on that, not burying the lead. So, all right, seems like a friendly enough sort. So I got to meet all those guys and more and more as we were like planning actions and especially leading up to the elections in 2008, uh, we, we all, that group spent a lot of time together and Rick was a part of that. Wait, so they're both vets. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I went a little radio lab on you, didn't I? Um, here, let's have Mike just introduce himself. My name is Mike Flaherty. I'm a U.S. Army veteran, and I served two tours in Iraq, both uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom 1 and 3. So I deployed in 2003 and 2005 out of Fort Carson, Colorado. So yes, both vets. And as you heard, both were very involved in an organization called Iraq Veterans Against the War, or IVAW. It's a national protest organization that was started in 2004. That's where the two of them met. So I always liked Rick because he was charismatic, right? He was he was um, always cracking a good joke, always just a little, little on that fringe, you know, of, is this guy crazy or is he just a fun-loving ADHD sort of person. Now, it should be noted here that a lot of the guys in IVAW had some pretty severe PTSD. Some had just gotten home and were barely starting to process what they had been through. A few of them were drinking pretty heavily to cope. So the fact that Rick seemed a little off sometimes was hardly a big deal. Most of the guys that hung out at our place seemed that way a lot. So it's just to kind of paint a picture of the house, but we, the, the kinds of friends that... We, I would bring over, of course, were mostly these this group um, of veterans, right? And they'd get a little wild. We'd sit out on the patio, drink a lot of beers. 
and just sort of hang out together, you know? Okay, he's making it sound folksy. This was a, a party house. It had some crazy nights. There was furniture smashed, cops called. I would tell stories, but I know my mom is listening. Hey, mom. We had an original three roommates. One roommate left. I gave a favor to a, a friend, another friend, who had came, stayed with us. Whenever that month was up and he didn't have any money to offer up, he just skipped town. Cue Rick. Rick Duncan was a guy with an incredible story. After graduating at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, he quickly became a captain in the Marines. He was stationed at the Pentagon on 9-11. And during his third tour of Iraq, Rick encountered an IED. Three of the five people in the vehicle with him died. Rick was severely injured. His story was that he had suffered um, some severe head trauma and that his um, convoy was hit by an IED. And that's how he um, suffered his injuries. My third tour in Iraq, I call it my two, two and a half tours because I only made it about halfway through. I was involved in an IED explosion that killed four Marines. That he was, you know, severely concussed and even had like a scar along like one side of his head. I have a plate roughly the size of a uh, like a cup and saucer on this portion of my skull right here. I've got a, I've got a scar that runs back here and then down here. In addition, Rick had two fake knees, a replacement hip, brain damage, nerve damage on the right-hand side of his body, and a good deal of internal shrapnel. He was awarded the Purple Heart, which is given out for being injured in combat, and perhaps more impressively, the Silver Star, which is the U.S. military's third highest personal decoration for valor in combat. And I know this is not more impressive, but it's still kind of impressive to me that Rick was set to be on This American Life. It was the first thing I ever heard about him, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world at the time. He would tell the story you know, pretty frequently. Whenever we would have our demonstrations or rallies or whatnot, Rick was very charismatic, and he would always sort of be like a spokesperson. He would tell this story, and he would, you know, he would amazingly like really connect with, with veterans who had similar stories, and that they would tell him their stories. And so Rick would start gathering up all these stories of other veterans. And he put those stories to good use. He helped produce something called the Warrior Writers Open Mic Night, where vets would do spoken word pieces about their experiences. He also founded an organization called the Colorado Veterans Alliance to help veterans in need. Now, he was very outspoken about the effects of, of war on himself. None of the other guys really in the group were quite that way. Every now and then you could have a little heart to heart between each other, but nobody like really just had this sort of over the top um, way of talking about trauma or the effects of war. And the majority of the group, we just didn't talk too much, if at all, about deployments or anything we did because we were there as support to take our minds off of it, to think about something else. And not only that, but to try to help raise like a little bit more awareness because at that time, even in 2007, they hadn't even come out with that information that we know now, right? Which is that there was there were no weapons of mass destruction. That like we can we know a lot of like the things that were happening behind the scenes that led to the war in Iraq and how the war in Afghanistan was being handled. Things like that weren't in the light, and we were wanting to be a group that did kind of shed light on those types of issues. 
Rick took to the spotlight a little more than most. He was working for Senator Udall's office, and he sort of became like a poster child for veterans issues in Colorado. And like he was on commercials for Senator Udall. Actually, the commercial he was in was for Hal Bidlack, who was running for Congress at the time. Lieutenant Colonel Hal Bidlack. He's a 25-year veteran. A national security advisor. And a nuclear missile launch officer. He'll stand up. For vets like us. Every single person that we knew just accepted him. This is our friend Rick, um, Marine Captain, veteran. Every, every now and then at our rallies, people would kind of come up. And we just asked them some of the sort of basic questions about what unit were you in or, you know, and then who were you attached to another unit or whatever. And you start kind of hearing from people and you kind of think, okay, this guy's just, this guy's probably not telling the truth. We would do that as veterans. And Rick would participate in those types of conversations from time to time. When he moved in with us, I would be watching television or something late at night in the living room and Rick was sleeping on our couch. We had two. He'd sleep on one, I'd sit on another one and watch television. It didn't seem to bother him. As he would lay there sleeping, he would start going through these little fits of like freaking out a little bit or, or acting like very terrified, you know, or presenting very terrified, like as if he's having a very bad dream. And he'd kind of wake up and <gasps> catch his breath and kind of look around and like, eyes wide just kind of looking at me and then finally like narrowing his his vision and just kind of calming himself down and he's talking about oh yeah man you know like, i just have these night terrors it's you know so sorry if i do that or if it's just, if it's disrupting you at all or anything i'm like no don't worry about it man you're, you're fine but after a few weeks things started to seem a little strange the night terrors threw me off or or, or raised skepticism in me because it just seemed too dramatic. And now I had never been someone who has witnessed someone having actual night terrors. So I I just doubted the legitimacy of it just because of the times that it occurred. It seemed like it was mostly occurring when I was around. It's not like I ever heard him having these fits when I was in my bedroom or or if he was actually asleep and I was kind of waking up and moving around, I wouldn't see it then. I would really only see it I felt like when he knew I was around, like when he knew he had an audience, it it started as a as a as a small suspicion, and it's a suspicion that you don't want to have about one of your veteran friends. You don't want to be sitting here. Thinking, we never we don't challenge each other. Some of us were very honest. I myself was in a very much a support role during my deployments, and I have one of my other friends who was a sniper, or these guys were cavalry scouts. And so, like, these guys definitely were dealing with a lot more tense situations than I ever did. But we always talked about how no one has a monopoly on trauma or how war affects you. And it was always sort of this thing to say, you're in this community of veterans. You served over there in these wars. You're one of us. We don't care if you didn't take a life. We don't care if you didn't get shot at. We don't care if you never set foot off of a base or anything like that. It doesn't matter. You were over there. And if you feel at all used or betrayed by the government, like for me, I was very upset about the fact that I feel like the premise for the war in Iraq was just a straight up lie that I bought into and I felt betrayed because of it. And a lot of us sort of had that like a little bit of resentment and anger. So that was another sort of thing that unified us where you did not have to have super like combat or tense experiences. Once my skepticism 
had begun, I remember going up to Cripple Creek with another IVAW and veteran friend of mine. Um, and I just kind of remember talking to him a little bit about Rick and talking about these night terrors that I was seeing. Um, and even more like other things that I can't quite recall now, but there were, there was a little bit more that was making me skeptical of him. And I just remember that I turned to my friend and I said, you know, I think that, I think that Rick's full of shit. Next time on the show. When I found out, I actually had a sense of pride that like, aha, I was correct. Next up is a song from some old friends of mine. This is a band called Rabbit is a Sphere, and the song we're playing is called Hell Has a Heart.
Last up, we have our first fiction piece. The story is called Making Up for Lost Opportunities by Hilary Pulwaka. Our reader for this piece is Andrea Sanchez. When I lived in my last apartment, there was a girl who rode my bus most mornings on the way to work. She was not beautiful, but pretty. There was nothing particularly striking about her, but her features were arranged pleasantly enough. She had mouse brown hair that she wore in a smooth bob. Sometimes during the summer it would be wet, so I assumed she was running late on those days. She always chose the seat right in front of me, so I wouldn't care to speculate on the number of hours I spent looking at back of her head. Her neck, her shoulders. Her skin was very pale and impossibly smooth. She always wore a sleeveless top, a skirt, and knee-high boots. If it was cold, she would wear a large, long puffer coat, but she would always take it off as soon as she sat down. She carried a paper fan with her, the kind that unfolds to reveal a scene of cherry blossoms or geisha, not unlike the one I had as a child and was peculiarly obsessed with. On hot days, she would use it to fan herself, even with the bus's air conditioning blasting full bore. I decided that her sleeveless tops, her aversion to that coat, and her incessant fanning were the result of not wearing deodorant. At first, I mused that perhaps she was sort of hippie who eschewed the chemicals and antiperspirants. But then I remembered that they make natural deodorants, so I decided that wasn't the reason. The alternative that I landed on was that she had a daddy, or a dom, or whatever the appropriate nomenclature for that lifestyle. I began to spin a narrative about this woman in my mind, filling the long minutes of my commute with fanciful explanations for my observations. I imagined that she lived alone in one of the townhomes at the end of the street, that she worked for a law or architectural firm in an administrative or clerical capacity. She didn't make much money, but the rent on the townhome was taken care of by her companion. He wanted her available to him as often as possible. He had his own set of keys made, and while he tried to be respectful of her schedule, he would often come over on a whim. He liked her legs, so he wanted her always in skirts, but he also loved the look of her legs encased in leather, so he bought her a wardrobe of expensive, high-quality boots. He could abide neither the artificial smell of hair product nor the fussy styles that necessitated it, so he insisted that she keep her hair healthy and simple, in a style that she could just wash, blow, dry, and go. He didn't like a lot of makeup either, and he thought that she was pretty enough that all she needed was a little mascara and some tinted lip gloss. His favorite thing about her was her skin. He would spend hours when they were together, licking her from head to toe and back again, bathing her body with his tongue. For this reason, she never wore deodorant, scented body lotion, or heavy perfumes. I heard her on the phone just once in all those many months of riding the bus behind her. She was speaking to her mother about moving. She sounded anxious about it. So I decided that her agreement with her benefactor had come to or was approaching its end. I can't remember the last day I saw her, what she was wearing or how she smelled. Only that after an unmeasured period of time, I never saw her again. I have to wonder if this little yarn I spun wasn't a direct result of my then recent recollection of an opportunity I once had to be, shall we say, kept for a time by an older, wealthy man. If it seems laughable to imagine now, back then it was downright terrifying. I was rather attractive when I was young, and softer in many ways. Sweeter, more amenable and eager to please. I was inexperienced in every way a person can be, 
and still malleable, but with absolutely no knowledge of how practical and mutually enriching those sorts of arrangements can be. So it never came to pass, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't regret that from time to time. What's that line? It's better to regret something you've done than something you never did. Lord, ain't that the truth. And that's the show. You can find us over at Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Denver Orbit. And we're also on Instagram at Denver Orbit. Mike is a contributor to this podcast and a photographer. And you can see his work at 13zphotography.wordpress.com and on Instagram at Shifting Passions. Rabbit is a Sphere is unfortunately no longer active as a band, but you can still find their album Laps in the Sleep Salon over at iTunes. For more of Hillary's stories, check out belladonnanorton.wordpress.com. They're pretty fantastic. And Andrea Sanchez, our reader for that story, has an art show coming up titled Et Osa Mia, or My Bones, that opens on Friday, October 13th at Bellwether. You can find both her photography and paintings on Instagram at Drea Ann. And be sure to tune in next time for the conclusion to Mike's story and some other things as well. Denver Orbit is written and produced by Josh and myself and is edited and totally sounds cool because of Josh. Denver Orbit is a twice monthly podcast, so we'll see you again in two weeks. Alright, go ahead. <coughs> go ahead. Go ahead and record your piece now, Ryan. I'm doing it, Ma! <laughs> <laughs>